Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, um, Al Murray and James Holland. And well, uh, what a treat we have for you today. James, who are we talking to today? Well, we've got an eclectic mix today, but one that I'm very excited about. We've got the brilliant Professor Frank McDonough, who is an absolute expert about all things Third Reich, Nazi and, um, uh, and Hitler. Uh, and we've also got actor Paul McGann, who is a great mate of Frank's. Um, I think a, a, an interested history lover, um, uh, an interested party. But of course, you know, from my point of view, very excitingly, because of course he was in the Monocle Mutineer and with Nell and I was almost sharp and has been on our screens in zillions of things. Um, uh, and I'm a massive fan, so I'm a little bit overawed by this, to be honest. <laughs> almost sharp is about right. I mean, if there's two words that describe me, mate. <laughs> You've got me in two. Oh, you'd have been much better. You'd have been much better. 
Uh, mo- mo- morning, gentlemen. Now, um, uh, Frank, your uh, uh, what we tend to do on the uh, and Paul, I'll ask you this as well. What we tend to do on the podcast is when we have someone on that people um, <clears throat> maybe our listeners are maybe new to, we simply ask them why are you so interested in this period of history? Because Frank, this is your deep dive, total speciality. You've written about Sophie Scholl, you've, the origins of the Second World War, an international perspective, Hitler, the rise of the Nazi, Nazi party. You've done the Gestapo, the myth and reality of Hitler's secret police. This is really, I mean, as patches go, this is your patch. Why this? Why are you so interested in it? It goes back to when I was a child, really, because um, my dad, he'd fought in the Second World War. He was called Frank as well. Yeah. And he took me to Liverpool Town Hall one day. I must have been about five and there was like a memorial to the people who died in Liverpool in, in the First World War. And he pointed out one name, which was my name. It was Francis McDonough. Right. And he died in, in the First World War. And he said, you know, he was your, he was your great uncle. And so I, I said, why, why, did he, why did he die? He said, because we fought Germany. And I said, couldn't, couldn't we have stopped the war? I asked him, remember asking him that question. And then that got me interested in Germany and then growing up. And so then later on, growing up, you know, with my dad fighting in the war and growing up in Liverpool, Paul will tell you this, you know, every, everybody talked about the Second World War and every, everybody in Liverpool had a, had a gas mask in their house. So the, they, they talked about the Second World War as if it was something that happened yesterday. And there were still sort of the relics of the bombing as well. So you'd play around and people say, well, that's a bombie. That was a house that had been bombed in the Second World War. So Hitler was like a kind of, he was an active person in growing up. And I got this book at school, given to me at school, uh, uh, William Shirer's book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And I read it and I I just got fascinated by the whole idea of... um, of the history of the Second World War and specifically the rise and fall of Hitler, really. Paul, what what brought you to the subject? Is it a, a similar thing that that? It, yeah, completely. I mean, maybe it's just an age thing. Well, I'm certain it is an age thing. Yeah. Particularly me and Frank are around the same age. You know, that's the age where, you know, if you're, the chances are both your granddads fought in the First World War, and your dad and your uncles fought in the Second. You know, so it was like Frank says. You know, it was. It was almost yesterday. In fact, it was, you know, you were literally pl- in a place like Liverpool. As a kid, you'd think, well, they've only just finished clearing up by the looks of things. Yeah. You know, they had to start to rebuild. Um, everybody, you know, everyone you knew or the, all the adults that you knew, the teachers at school, you know, the lollipop man on the corner who went to school, the fella in the shop, all, all the adults of a certain age had all been, they'd all been somewhere or done something. You know, or, or your mum had been bombed out. Everybody had stories to tell. So it was like living in the... Um, it's personal, but it's like living in the aftermath of it. Yeah. That was the atmosphere. That's what you kind of drank with your mother's milk. But that's the, that's the, the air that you breathe. That's the atmosphere that you grew up in. And, of course, the Liverpool itself was so badly hit, wasn't it? So presumably you're, you're walking down the streets and there's lots of... I mean, there's those famous pictures of the Beatles, aren't there, in sort of 1961 or two, where they're kind of sort of jumping, leaping in the air on a kind of bombed-out building... Um, you know the sort of rubble still. Yeah, which around. were everywhere. You know, yeah, 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 and and even now to this day, you know, you know those big, the great northern cities, you know, Sheffield, Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool. You know, the um, Glasgow I was in last week, Belfast is the same. You know, the, the large degree they've not been rebuilt, they've not been reordered. They look the same. Yeah, um, and the mod you know, this, and the modern stuff you see is the legacy of 
of that bombing. So the the, the sort of completely in Glasgow, for instance, the, all the the massive motorways that run through the centre of the city are because of because of that. You know the the the, re, the redesign. Um. Uh, so so Frank, I mean uh, your your most recent book, uh, which 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 I which I, I sort of inhaled basically, is the is the is the basically the the. The, the second half of Hitler's reign, isn't it? So it's the war playing out. When you come to write about the Nazi regime, do you have to wear sort of a, a, a different hat when the war begins? Because they're, because suddenly there's a military aspect to things and not necessarily the political and civil aspect that is, that's tied up in the run-up to the, the war breaking out. Yeah, it's much more of a challenge, this book, because I wrote it in two volumes. The first volume is 33 to 39 yeah. and as you were saying earlier I've written a lot on diplomatic history you know I've written about Chamberlain and Anglo-German relations but I haven't written as much on the second world war and certainly not on military history so the second one was a bigger challenge so that went from 1940 to 1945 and so I had it's a bigger I mean James will know this I haven't written so many books about the second world war but the second world war is it's a huge panorama it's a massive panorama and the the big difficulty that I had in the Second World War was that, you know, I had to get together a kind of a massive chronology, which I did. I kind of storyboarded the whole thing so that I yeah. didn't sort of, you know, go off on a tangent. And it's, very, it's very hard to hold all the different narrative strands uh, together because so, so much is happening. And that's why the second book is so much bigger than, than the first book, really. And, um, I mean, it was quite a task for Paul because Paul, of course... The link here is that Paul did the audio books for for the two volumes, and I know it was quite a task for him. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Frank, I can completely relate to the whole trouble of kind of marshalling your narrative. It's you know, when you're doing a book, you you need to have a kind of narrative arc, and, and it's so complex. There's so many different things going on. There's so much nuance and so many little kind of sort of rabbit holes that you can find yourself going down. It is really, really hard. Paul, I mean, you know, when you when you're reading Frank Frank's books. I, you know, we we all grow up with a kind of sort of an opinion of the Second World War, which is probably influenced by tales our our grandfathers or uncles or whatever told us. But it's also from watching the great war movies of the fifties and sixties, isn't it? And it's also from reading kind of you know my case or reading Commando comics and stuff like that. You know, when you're reading Frank's book, how 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 sort of different is it from your kind of perceived view when you're kind of reading kind of the latest academic thinking and all this stuff? Well, of course, it's wholly different, and um, and no bad thing for that. You know, you I mean, I read um, we did the the Gestapo book together, didn't we, Frank? I mean, I read that for for audio. <clears throat> That's a good case in point that. You know, of course, there's common assumptions and plenty of myths and legends about the uh, the Gestapo. But of course, you know, when you when you come to read the book like Frank's, which tells, I suppose, the ordinary tale of it, along with the lists and the statistics and everything else, you know, which of course, you know, as a reader, you have to, you know, you have to battle through those as well. But the, but then, you know, what, that's a good antidote. Um, and for example, in the in the Gestapo book. You know, you learn, for example, and it's the same with these two volumes, you know, that um, it challenges your assumptions. You, that you, like with the Gestapo, for example, you know, you see that they were, for the most part, at least at the beginning, ordinary policemen, you know, if you like, remodeled into this, into this organisation. You know, the, the kind of lists of arrests and the type of arrests that they made and the, and the kind of missions that they set for themselves weren't the kind of weren't the stories from those commando comics, for example. Nor were they. Kind of, they're not all driving around. They're not all kind of wandering around in, in kind of leather coats, are they? You know, that's the point. Not at all. You know, and, they, and it's more like you know, it's more like it's police procedural. 
you know, it's um, it's it's ordinary. But but like I said, better for that. Same with this, um, with the latest book. Again, even even in the grand sweep of things, if you've not like I hadn't, for example, looking at in 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 the second volume, uh, Disaster, I'd not. I don't think I'd even heard of Bagration. The Battle of Bagration. Yeah, well, that is. I mean, you know, and I've gone to school, and I've... a friend of mine is just literally about to start writing the first ever English language narrative history standalone book on Bagration, which but is the, yeah. But there we are, you know. But, you know, eight hundred thousand yeah. dead, or just on the. It red is. Arms. It is arguably the Battle of the War. It's the one that turned things. It's it's the it's the decisive battle, if you like. You could argue it. Um, but for most of us, you know, for, for, the, for the lay, for the general reader, for the likes of yourself, I wouldn't have known that. Yeah. Nobody teaches you that. Yeah. Or rather, you know, or, or some, some other story is favoured, you know, the one over in, in Normandy or in South Italy. You know what I mean? So it's, it's that. That's, that's the difference. And you see uh, and you're able to read um, the real thing. Yeah. I think what's... Um, go on, go on well, well, Frank, um, I recently read... Uh, uh, Volker Ulrich's uh, biography of um, Hitler, the two-volume two biography, which I, which I enjoyed enormously. But in, in the introduction to the second book, he says, to be honest, I, he kind of, I'm paraphrasing, he says, to be honest, I'm glad I've finished this book because I'm sick of being around these people and this mindset. It, I, I feel dirty as a result of it. And, I, and, and the, the, the sooner I can f- basically forget about Nazism, the better. Do you ever end up feeling like, feeling like that because some of the ideas are so sort of vile and pernicious and uh degrading um that that, that are at the heart of, of of nazism do you ever end up feeling that or are you maybe it's different because he's a german are you able to are you able to um be be standoffish enough about that the funny thing is that when i did the first volume because it was diplomatic history and it's not as you know it's not you're not getting down to the nitty-gritty of the actual brutality of nazism you can actually stand yeah. back and you can start to look at, you know, Hitler as a politician. And that was what I did in the first volume. Yeah. In the second volume, when I got to the the part about um, the Holocaust, yeah, it's very harrowing. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, you know, I, I, the next book I do, I'm deciding what I'm going to do next. But I want to get away from Nazism for the next book that I do. Because I think the Holocaust, I find, um, you know, I find it unbelievable, really. And uh, I, I do find it really harrowing. You know, I do find it harrowing. And there's, there's passages in the book. I didn't want to overlay the brutality, but the brutality's there. But, you know, I don't think it's sort of... You, need, you, need, you don't need sort of ten examples of someone being tortured to emphasise the point. Um, and in many ways, it's the kind of... Some of the perpetrators like Franz Stangl, who was mm. the uh, camp commandant at Treblinka... I mean, his interview with Gator Sereni is just chilling. You know, it's amazing, she, isn't it? It's an amazing interview. You know, yeah. she, she asks him, you know, how did he cope with it? And he says, well, I used to drink late at night. I'd have a big beaker of, um, of brandy, you know, to get through it. And then he said, you know, how did you, how did you get through actually dealing with the death itself? And he said, I just saw them as cargo. Uh, he said, I, I saw them all as cargo. Not not as real, not not as real human beings, and and you know, and, and he he saw it as like a kind of you know that he thought he could get out of it, um, and also you know I think that's the thing about Nazi Germany. There's a very good film uh, called Good, which you may have all seen with Viggo no, Mortensen, 
and and that book's re- that film rather is really good because what it is is it it's the kind of transition of the ordinary person who was a liberal in Weimar Germany and gradually gets sucked in by the Nazi regime and then later on he meets a friend who he also knew from the Weimar period and they start to have a chat you know and he says oh you he works for for Go- uh, Goebbels uh, propaganda ministry by then and he says something like oh yeah yeah he says well, what about Hitler then? What a, what a monster he is. And he said, what? What are you talking about? You're talking about the Fuhrer? And, he, and, he, and it's like he's changed. You know, the guy realises this guy has kind of assimilated these Nazi ideas. And that, that's what's fascinating about Nazi Germany is the way that people went from one set of values in the Weimar period and then transitioned over into this other set of values and this sort of moral degradation. And that's what I find interesting about the Third Reich as a kind of um, Paul would see this yeah. as well as a, it's a kind of drama really the kind of the ca- actually characters that Paul's played so brilliantly yeah but you just mentioned the uh, um, Sereni's book um, and I remember I read that and, and there's, there's episodes where uh, at least early on where the Anschluss has happened you know he's been a CID detective hasn't he in um, wherever he is in one of the, the in one of one of the cities and his and he, and and there's the scenes where it's almost filmic. He keeps going back to his wife, or you, yeah. or they have these conflabs, yeah. and she, you know, initially thinks, you know, as soon as the, the, when the the Anschluss has happened, they're going to come for him. They've known yeah. he's been a, you know, the, uh, maybe slightly left wing or something. So he initially gets away with that, and they breathe a sigh of relief, and then, you know, we go back and we, they they talk again a month later. But and it's like it creeps. His involvement yeah. creeps. He's happy to get away with it. There's also that. And you can almost imagine this happening a million times over, yeah. you know, yeah, over yeah. the course of the war. Certain individuals compromised, but glad to still be alive. And now they're sort of in the machine. Um, and of course, in his case, he went right to the... I mean, the amazing thing about it top. is that he doesn't start bad, does he? I mean, you know, he's he's not a bad man growing up. He just, he, he just, he just, keeps, ordinary, he just yeah. keeps making these forks in the road, doesn't he? And he keeps taking the wrong one. Every single time he just takes the wrong fork. You know, from a moral you point can, of view, and, it's amazing. And you can put yourself there. Yeah. You can almost you can you can empathise. You know, yeah. you could you could easily, as as you know as you do when you read the books. You say, well, if that was me, I would probably, you know, to save my skin, say, or to keep stum, say, or to or to keep my wife safe, say, I would do yeah. that. I would. And next thing, he finds himself in Berlin, and he's working for the. For the, um... Yeah, and suddenly he's a, he's a charge of a death camp. I mean, it, it is. It's the most compelling book, isn't it? I mean, first he goes to the euthanasia program, doesn't yeah. he? And then he, again, he, you know, they test him out. They almost stress test him. And again, this becomes the method by which they find their individuals. You know, which of course is appalling and fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and really, the story of the of the era. But also, I tell is. you, what, I tell you what, I've I've discovered more and more as the more I look into all this. The more I realise that, that that Nazi Germany is just completely rotten to the core, and I don't just mean morally because that's that's it goes without saying, but actually the foundations of it are so fragile. It's 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 like a so it's it's like a it's like La La Land without you know it is it it is a total fantasy world they're creating, which is built on the flimsiest of foundations. Actually, it doesn't take an awful lot, which which I think you kind of sort of bring out. In, in your book, Frank, is it doesn't take much for it all to come tumbling down. You know, Nazi Germany is just never as strong as the propaganda would have us believe it is. 
Yeah, I think that's that's the point that I kind of make that really from the get go, uh, you know, Nazi Germany was in trouble because it, it didn't, you know, because Hitler really didn't coordinate his government. Government didn't really function inside uh, Nazi Germany. It was sort of devolved to a load of different people, to ministries and then lower down to the Gauleiters and then lower down that to the party. So I find that it was kind of like it was an incompetent kind of government. And Hitler's Hitler for me, I say, you know, the Hitler is he's addicted to war. You know, people said, oh, Hitler was, you know, all these books about Hitler being a junkie and all that. I say, you know, Hitler's addiction was to war. He wanted war. He loved war. Uh, he called it the Great Cleanser. He thought war was something wonderful. And, you know, it it purged society, and the better side won, or the more sort of superior race won, and then society moved. Survival of the Moved, yeah, moved on in that way, and he he I think didn't didn't really know where he was going. He he was literally he was literally moving forward, but but to no real end. Where was he going to end? He didn't really know where he was going to end. He didn't seem to you know it was an objective without an end. Is the way I see, it. and also it's the like you so said. So the thousand the, thousand year Reich is just a, that's just a phrase. That's just a catch line. It's, 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 not, a it's phrase. not anything of any substan- substance. Because at the end, at the end of the war, what I find fascinating at the end was that sometimes you find sources, you know, that that are interesting, and I I, I liked uh, the the um, the memoir of of his secretary, Travel Young, because yeah. he has a he has a few conversations with her. Towards right towards the end, you know, right towards the end, he starts. She asks him the question. She said, "You know, in the bunker, right at the end." She says, um, "Well, you know, it, 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 it's it's all over, isn't it? Really, you know." And she said, "What, what do you think will happen to Nazism?" And he said, "Nazism's finished. It's dead." And she said, "Will it ever come back?" He said, "Well, maybe in a hundred years' time." He said, "But it won't come back in the same form anyway." He said, "We had our chance here," and he said, um, "You know." The German people, the German people just weren't ready for it, and he was very cynical about the German people. People have this idea of Hitler as this German nationalist, you know. We've got to point out Hitler was an Austrian. <laughs> he wasn't, you know, he wasn't even German. And you know, and, and he also allowed for the fact that you know, look at the at the Waffen SS, where he allowed all kinds of, you know, what he saw as Aryan people to join it, and he saw the British basically as Aryans as well, and the Scandinavian countries, you mm. know, like the Netherlands and Sweden and Norway. He thought they could all come and join his kind of greater German Reich. And he also said, you know, I, I, I've only got a few years left to turn this group into the master race. And then later on in the war, you'll know this, James, he keeps saying to people like Albert Speer, they're not really up to it. And if they're not yeah. up to it, he said, they must suffer the consequences yeah, well yes yeah, he yeah. says in the in his last will and testament doesn't he, he says basically the germans have failed german people have failed the test i set them yeah you know t- basically tough shit yeah yeah exactly yeah and it's nothing to do with yeah it's nothing to do with me i set them the task they failed they failed them they failed themselves oh well too bad and yeah. and it's the and it's the jews fault and, yeah. and that, that and and that his view survives that like that like that late into the war is is really fascinating i mean it's interesting though that you, i mean when we you said you studied him in the first book how he operates as a as a politician mm. yet here we are talking about how like basically the the, the politics is so essentially non-existent without yeah. him yeah exactly um, uh, uh, and and so much i mean you know we, we we don't believe in the great men of history anymore but he it, as it were he is so central to how everything works and doesn't work um he's so central to what they're trying to do and why they fail to achieve it it 
he's almost a sort of unique figure, historic figure in that essence, isn't he? I think Hitler's greatest skill was his, his ability to to exploit situations that he didn't actually create. We see a lot of this yeah. idea of Hitler as the master planner, but he actually operates better in situations that he didn't create. I mean, a good example is the Anschluss in you know, 1938, where it comes about through a, through a referendum, and then he decides to... Um, to, to invade Czechoslovakia, even the attack on uh, you know the attack through the Ardennes, it comes around around because of the Mechelen incident where you know the plans yeah. get leaked. Yeah. So he, he exploits that. So I find with Hitler that he, he kind of he's better off exploiting a situation than actually taking the lead. When he takes a lead, it tends to be a bit disastrous. You know, he takes a lead over over Poland, doesn't he, in 1939? Yeah. Um, and even yeah. even even the Nazi Soviet pact, you could argue that you know in fact i do argue that you know it actually grows out of stalin stalin it's the russians who take the initiative to open the talks for the nazi yeah, soviet no, really pact. so i think yeah. that whereas hitler was a kind of he was you know a consumer politician in a crisis when the war comes the dynamics change i think that's important to emphasize He's, he's with a group of people who he doesn't feel comfortable with. He's with these generals, these high-ranking generals. And yeah, these he doesn't like them, does he? He doesn't like them. He's basically, you know, Hitler is basically a, you know, a lower middle class person who hasn't that really had a, a higher education. And these guys are, you know, elite people who've gone to very good schools and he feels really uncomfortable with these people. And that's the problem there. They are still looking at these sort of battles in a kind of very kind of academic way almost, you know, very purposecaciously. And, and Hitler sort of, he doesn't like them. It's obvious he doesn't like these people. He's used to hanging out with people who are, you know, they're, they're the kind of stormtroopers and people like that. He can enjoy the company of people like that. He feels more uncomfortable yeah. with people who are genuinely upper middle class and comfortable in their skin. And these people are... And I mean, he, the point I make, after, after he gets a list from the Gestapo of all the people who were involved in the bomb plot, he looks down the list and he says, everyone's called Von. Von this, Von that, Von the other. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he says, he says why, have, why have I surrounded myself with all of these type of people? And he does say, doesn't he, I should have Nazified the army. I should have yeah. done what Stalin did. He throws out a lot of compliments towards Stalin, doesn't he? The scorched yeah. earth policy, etc., etc. Yeah. You know, the purges. You know, and he's, he, the purges as well. I should have purged them. And and really, you know, I think that he's the only person that he kind of admires, really. Stalin is as, <laughs> as brutal as him. In fact, more brutal than him, as it turns out. He, he is the, the baddest man in the whole damn town, isn't he? You know? Yeah. 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 Um, so I think that it's two different stories, really. That's what I found. That's, that's why I found the second half fascinating for the military history really because I thought in the other books I mean you mentioned the Ulrich book and and the other biographies but and probably James Holland may agree with me on this but I don't think that the the other general histories actually do do good service to the military history really you only get like two paragraphs on the no, that's a, no it's true I yeah. mean even even, I, even even Richard Evans he doesn't you know diddly squat about about the military um, because that's the, the worst one was the Brendan yeah. Sims it was terrible 
Was it yeah, because Brendan that, Sims. That was, was yeah, yeah. It was it, it was like a big. It was like a, it was like one of those essays you get from an undergraduate. You you put through it. You, you just say, where, "Why have you gone off on this tangent?" <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I always I, I always hated Mark an essay that started off with, "Let me give you a quotation from David Copperfield." You know, and then and, and it was an essay. About, <laughs> it, and it, and it, it ended it ended up being an essay about Chamberlain. You know. <laughs> and it, it, his his book was like a, it was like the one of those terrible essays that you read you know it's kind of like hitler believed in this yeah nobody ever thinks he believed in that but i think he did yeah it's absolutely bonkers it's absolutely bonkers uh, we're going to take a brief break now we'll be back in a tick Welcome back to We Have Ways. We're talking to Paul McGann and Frank Madonna. Paul, have you? I mean, you've done a few. Uh, you've done some war stuff, Second World War filming in the past, haven't you? You've, you know, from Empire of the Sun to Bletchley Circle to all sorts. Yeah, I feel like I was born a bit too late, though. I mean, I, I think. Would you've loved to have been in a bridge too far? It. You know, if you had the chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, fifties and sixties ones. I remember being a kid and seeing even things like you know, where eagles dare, yeah, yeah. You know, bunking into the flicks as he were. You know, I wouldn't have minded being in, uh, you know, a few sort of war capers. Um, <laughs> but by the time we got to... And of course, it's quite, they're, they're obviously difficult to pull off on the telly so much. You know, um, you know the constraints are just too much. Um, we did the mutineer um, mid-80s. and yeah. the, That was a big deal, yeah. you know, First World War. Thing. I remember it very well. Um, yeah, and it was... And I think that's the first time, you know, I, you know as, a, as an actor, I, you know, I was in a big... War picture because they're great to be in. They're great to be in, you know, because um, it's dressing up, of course. You have know, all the kind of <clears throat> simple and natural things that actors kind of dig, joined up for. You know, they're, they're there. When we did, um, what was it, 1985, we did, we shot Monocle Mutineer for the BBC. Um, and thinking back, it was, it was probably, how, how old would the World War One veterans, they would have been getting yeah. on maybe in their 70s and yeah, 80s. Yeah. They're still around, though, aren't they? You know, yeah, but there was there was and there was sufficient of them around still, you know, for it to you know for them to be you know parts of documentaries. They were all interviewed, people wrote their books, and what's more, they came out and they spoke. You know, this long silence, almost this murder ended. And moreover, people there was a huge kind of interest, a resurgence. I remember it around that mm. time in World War Well, Lynn MacDonald was also it. writing all her books at that time. That's they, right. Yeah, yeah. Psalm, they called it Passchendaele, all those those books. And they were very much sort of bottoms Martin up. Middlebrook. Yes, exactly. And they, and they were you know, bottom up kind of... They weren't oral histories, but they were kind of not far off it, you know. But the idea that, oh, we'd better speak to these people before... You know, let's interview these people before... You know, and, and, and suddenly there was the means, you know, you could you could... You know, you could put them on the telly. Um, I remember two being, I mean, like, like I said, I got two grandparents who fought in the, in the First World War, but I didn't know them um, so well. But I remember when we were, again, it's just a personal thing, but it's a personal connection. When we, there was a scene, there's a scene in the Monocle Mutineer, you know, that came from the book and then ended up on the on the film, on the television. You know, when the, and it's, of course, it's set at Ditap, at the transit camp, and there's a, there's a disturbance, there's a riot, and these rioters cross the bridge at one one on the first night or the second night into the into the local town, and there's a lieutenant on the bridge whose job it is to try and dissuade them and stop them from 
crossing the bridge. And this guy was a guy named um, Davis, James Davis. Anyway, when we, years later, 85, when we got to shoot this scene or mount this scene in Wales where they'd set it up, um, he came. He was 90. He turned up. Um, amazing. It, it felt amazing to, you know, to, and suddenly there he was and, 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 and you know, whatever it was, 60, 70 years later, he was, gonna, he was about to watch us enact, reenact a scene from his young life. He was 20 or 21 when the events happened. Um, and it was one in the morning. It was all a night shoot. He came and he walked along. We, 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 were, we were on this bridge that they'd built and we were all in these, you know, um, BBC uniforms. And I remember because he came along the line and he inspected us all and he said, you know what? I remember when he got to me and he said, you know, he said, now look, yeah, let me just fiddle with that. He said, he said, remember being at school when you sort of mess with your blazer or you'd sort of modify your, your tie? He said, we used to do that and this and that. And, and I remember the costume people sort of walking behind him with notebooks going, oh my God, you know, <laughs> he, you know getting it from... It's, it was that kind of thing. So, so there was a real connection. Yeah. And, um, and, that, and in a way, that was the first time that I, I was lucky enough to... And, and we talked all night. And I remember he had this little hip flask of whiskey and we drank that. No, that's amazing. And later on, I would, I would sort of fall in with... You know, just from going to the battlefields, just off my own bat, you know, with a mate, you know, go to the Western Front battlefields. And eventually would fall in with Henry Allingham and Harry Patch and all those, really? those men who, wow. in their turn. Yeah, of course, who in their turn would later become, you know, celebrated and we'd, we'd hear their stories as well. So that, that's how I remember it. That's how it happened, yeah. you know. Um, it got a lot of attention, didn't it? I remember it coming Incredible. out and you being on the front of the Radio Times, which was a big deal then, wasn't it? And It got a lot of, you know, a lot of the wrong kind of attention as well. Or at least there was a... There was a sort of hoo-ha about it, the, this idea that um, um, somehow it was sort of traducing our glorious military history or something, and you know, it was telling a sort of lefty tale about what, any blah, blah, blah. You know, we're, we're used to hearing that now, in fact. Nothing, nothing much it's has pretty changed. It felt quite a confected hoo-ha at the time, because... Yeah, it did. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like being in the middle of a confected thing like that. Because after all... I think it was hard, yeah, it was harder for Alan Bleasdale. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was sort of... I, I, I think somewhere I remember there was a, who was it was the cartoonist of the day Jack was it yeah. used to used to, you know and I remember there was a Jack cartoon I'm sure I didn't dream this you would probably find this somewhere on a file, but the, one of the cartoons in the middle of this thing and I remember Bleasdale was having to go on telly and sort of defend himself, um, about it, and there was this Jack cartoon and um, it's it there's a cartoon of Alan Bleasdale in the Corbin hat with a little star on it. Um, <laughs> and there's me um, dressed in some, I don't know, um, red army thing. And, we're, and I, I think one of us or both of us are standing in a dock in a court. Anyway, blah, it was, it was that sort of caper. And it, I, like I say, a lot of it we'd find, so people would find familiar now. Yeah. Um, how dare you... Um, you know, be, how dare you be woke, say, how, how dare you be, how dare you question, you know, the motives of, anyway, but yeah, the fact is, anyway, about the mutineer, that Bleasdale had simply dramatised a book that had been written by a couple of journalists, which in itself, I mean, don't think it had a single footnote, it was a bit of a tall tale to start with, and, and the character that I played, and again, this is probably more along the lines of the, the 50s and 60s films that I missed out on, it was a, it was a, it was mythological. It was yeah. Yeah. you know just silly heroic. He was more like a sort of cool hand Luke figure <laughs> thrown into the middle of um, you know into the middle of certain things which obviously took place and plenty of stuff that yeah. 
was all uh, bit of dramatic license. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's yeah, but that's what, 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 what you turn your telly on. What do you well, want? It's like, you know, but it's like uh, demanding that the crown be um, have a fiction warning before it. You know, like I mean, it's laughable. Whatever, really. Yeah. But there was that. <laughs> scene, there was that scene. I'm sure. I'm sure it was in the Monaco Mutineer because I, I remember it very clearly. With the with the, I think it's the officer who's been reduced to the ranks and is going to be shot at dawn, and and yeah. he's never slept with a girl, and he's terrified and and i seem to remember you had to look after him guard him the night before and stuff and and i'm sure that was in that scene and uh, that in that 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 series and and i just remember that particular sequence and him then being shot really vividly and being really really horrified it was a superb sequence that yeah Uh, i think that had come from a a victor sylvester memoir i think he um he had he had been that Officer, or at least he'd been that rating that had been, you know, had to sit with the fella, right. um, um, you know, and Bill Allison or John Fairley, where it was, had, had, had included that, and we ended up shooting it as a scene. It was a really good yeah, scene. Yeah, it was. I, I, well, I remember um, it very, very, very vividly. You know, amazing. Mm. You had a part in Empire of the Sun, didn't you? I did for a while. I mean, <laughs> um, in fact, I was in it for quite a long time, um, but then reduced as this is showbiz, folks. Um, I think I might have been in it for two or three minutes at the end. <laughs> But that was a, that was great to do. We we, you know, I, I must have spent ten twelve weeks on that thing, and we went to Spain. And um, of course, you know, anyone that knows the Ballard book, you know, it's um, you know they end up in a camp after being captured at Singapore, and and that was great. It, it, of course, it was uh, and Spielberg. Of course, so it was it was swanky and it looked fantastic yeah. and you know easy just to to throw yourself into and have a great time. They taught me to ride a horse. It's it's great to be an actor. Sometimes you you can have a yeah, uh, you know, you can find yourself doing stuff which is. Uh, it's quite fun being a historian um, too, because you get to fly spitfires and you know, you... <laughs> go in tanks and shoot stuff. Well, I tell them you can't enjoy that, really. You know, if you can't enjoy that, well, what you know, what, what are you doing? <laughs> quite, uh, right. you know. So, and, but like I say, you know, like I was saying before, it's also. I mean, I find so I've got that, and I can always do that. But but at the same time, it's nice to have the antidote. Antidote's probably the wrong word, but. You know, to to be tempered with you know reading books like Frank's, being involved, and in, or or even like like I do just for a pastime, reading the books, reading the history books, um, mm. and you know immersing yourself in the real thing. Um, you played in uh, Paul. You played a Nazi officer in the, that play a few years ago, the one about the Channel Islands. That's the last thing I did. Yeah, the last thing we did on stage. Yeah, yeah. 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 that's a very good play. In fact, um, it's a play by um, Moira Buffini. Um, called oh didn't she just do is that the person who wrote the screenplay for um the dig or am i imagining it yeah i think you're right uh she's a co- yeah there's a couple of big things on the telly what she she did the thing set in the in the cat house what was that thing that was on the bbc um uh in the, the harlots or something. yeah anyway so uh oh yes what yes, is a terrific yes, writer yes, she's yes, about there about colin Gardner. yeah fantastic stage writer and, and there's a play she i think it might even be her first play and it's set on the channel, it's set on Guernsey. Uh, starts, yes, yeah, and it's all. It takes you right through the occupation, which is fantastic because, um, and it's only I think it's a four or five hander. So, and I played the local commandant of the garrison, effectively all the Germans. Huh. You don't see, you don't see another German, and 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 it's set in a sort of it's set. In, it's basically about the, uh, a family of women trying to survive the four or five years. So they play all the all the. The, the Islanders, um, and there's a story. Yeah, there is a story. It's an amazing story. You know, they they went and they weren't liberated till the ninth of May. No, there's this there's this uh, there's this image, you know, and I think it's in it's in uh, at least it was you know, stuff I read around for the play. 
And as I did at the invasion uh, troops, you know, and there's my dad and probably Frank's dad, or maybe that, and they're sort of sailing round Guernsey and it's like, see you later, you know, the, uh, um, yeah, we'll come yeah. back for yeah. you, kind of thing. And then, and, and, In about and, nine months. Yeah. And it would, <laughs> well, months. that's right, because, you know, a lot of them by the end were starving. Um, you know, yeah, there were yeah. some seriously horrible things that were taking place. You know, 40, 50,000 German boys on the island. Yeah, you, the last thing you wanted it was to be bypassed by the Allies. I mean, you know, happened in Holland, happened in the Channel Islands, you know, because if you bypass, you cut off, and if you cut off, you don't get any food, and it's just as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, again, the, again, these these stories, unless you... Again, the stuff that they, they neglect to teach you at school, um, and which is great to catch up with, you know, the real... The real tales, you know. Um, I like that. Frank. That's why, that's why, that's why I suck up so, to Frank, isn't it, Frank? That's why I lig you all the while my, to get my, the real deal. My, my dad, my dad was involved, because you wrote a book in, in the uh, invasion of Sicily. And uh, he, he told, um, he was in the Navy, he told uh, the story. He used to always tell us the story about this. And he'd say, you know, he said, uh, anyway, he said, he said, uh, I go into this bar, he said, uh, completely empty. He said, I've just got a gun. He said, I go into the toilet and a hundred Italians surrendered to me. <laughs> and so and so my, my brother chipped in. He said, yeah, you're bragging. <laughs> so, Paul, what did you, you... You mentioned that your, your father and uncles were, were involved. What, what, what were they up to in the war? My dad, um, at uh, 18, the way he tells, he, he, just, he put his hand up. You know, he was a he was a, a naval rating, and he put his hand up one Sunday morning, and, and then found himself on a on a train up to Scotland, and ended up being out of the war for two years. He joined the you know they they sent him through Arachnacarry and went to, you know they did the commando training, um, and he oh, he ended up um, in the, the naval the Royal Naval Commandos, you know the the, the beach commandos. Yeah, um, and at, on so was he on duty? He was in on Gold Beach. Uh, he just turned twenty the week before. Oh, and um, he was no he was way. he was there in the dark, um, and so you know, f- wow. and so for him, um, you know, my best. And for, you know, but again, it's it's an age thing. And my best mate's dad, as it turned out, you know, we you know years ago when we met, this is the lad I used to you know go around the western from battlefields with, and it's only when you get to and he goes, oh really? Oh well, guess what? My dad would have been about an hour behind him with the Royal with the Royal Marine Commandos, and he was eighteen, you know, Pat. Blah blah, blah. and so and um, so it's it's us, you know. We're like we're that cohort, and my dad, um, uh, he made it till he lasted. He survived, obviously, and he but and he lasted till about he reckoned till about ten a.m. Uh, and miraculously, he was evacuated. Um, he should have died. He was. Um, so he's, he was. He was seriously because I mean. Yeah. The- yeah, and it was all incoming, of course. Because cause the, cause the, the Royal Marine Commandos on Gold Beach, they, they were the ones who then went, they bypassed Aramanche, which is just down the road, and went and captured yeah. Pont-en-Bassin, um, which would, had been earmarked for, there was going to be two Mulberry Harbours, these floating harbours. One at Aramanche, which is going to be the British one, one, one at Pont-en-Bassin, which is just to the east of Omaha Beach. They captured that. That's what they did. I mean, really, really key and vital, vital oh, mission. But yeah. obviously he missed it if he was bad. You know, for it. us, you know, we've been... Uh, my dad never, again, probably quite typically of his of his, of, of, of his mob and his generation, he never went back. He never left the country again. All his like, you know, when we were... Well, you know, we, you know our, our lads, you know, we're all lads as, as, uh, 
and, and we got a baby sister, you know, but as we were growing up and, you know, he began to sort of open up a bit more and about the, the tales, you know, and we, and suddenly, you know, we were growing up and then there's a bit of money and then we started travelling, you know, so, do you want to come to so-and-so? And he go, no. He, he never, I don't know why, he never, he never wanted to go back, you know, we, we would eventually go back, we went back, we'd go back to Aramanche, we looked at the place, you know, um, when the anniversaries came round, but, uh, and then he died quite young and um, so that's, that and his brother was in the RAF and um, I don't know, it's, like I say, growing up like that with that, with that, and, and around, surrounded by these people, you know, and uncles that were in, you know, captured at Singapore and uncles that were imprisoned by the Japanese and, you know, you, you, you can't, you're, it's fascinating as a child to be, to be, you know, because there's something, and, you know, watching grown-ups sensing it the stuff that they're not saying the sort of expressions on their faces sometimes when they break or sometimes when they you know when they crack or whatever it is you know as a child it's kind of and then you and then you know another relative will might sort of tell you a couple of little things and you know just saying to look you know just be patient because you know uncle bill blah 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 and you think and then you're 10 years old you know and it's and you know so it's it's tantalising little pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that never can be completed. No, so and yeah, like, like I said, and it's all and it and that never stops, and then they die, and then maybe mm. they don't, you know, they go, and you 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 they, you've never had the conversation, so which is a, and so it goes with them, and it's a shame, really. Yeah. Um, so that's the connection, you know. But then, like I say, every lad at school, every kid at school you were with, you know, there'd be similar stories, you know. And again, I suppose for us. You know, and we grew up in that aftermath and we never, it would never happen for us. We were thankful that, you know, some of us might famously sort of fantasise um, about wanting, you know, there was a t- I think because I loved my dad so much and uh, I wanted to please him. Um, and I remember growing up in Liverpool, you, you'll remember this, Frank, you know, for, particularly through the 60s and 70s, you know, when the, where, you know before, the, before the port ceased to be a port, um, as it was, and even you know, even naval ships had still come in for refits through the sixties. Then in the local paper, you know, every Sunday morning they'd announce, you know, the public could go on, and uh, you know, some ship might be in, and you could go and have a look around it. And my dad used to take us down there, you know, so up at Seaforth docks, and there might be, yeah, I, you know, we'd be I, proud. I joined the life boys, which because my dad had been in the navy, so I joined. So I had the little navy, you know, the little navy outfit, and I'd be going up these ropes and stuff like that. And nearly everyone was in one of those things, the cadets or. Mm. Or, or something, or something like that. And everybody, yeah. as you said, everybody had fought in the war. Um, or you got stories. My mum used to always tell me stories of the Blitz. She'd always tell me what happened in the Blitz. And I thought, quite, you know, because yeah. that's what she said. I thought, you know, Liverpool was bombed all the way through the war, and it was only later, it was only later, yeah. later, later on, later on, well. I realised that you know, it was, there, was, there yeah. was no bombing after 1941. You know, we were hardly ever bombed at all. But she believed that we were. You know, and there was like, and they, those yeah. people from those days, they were just in a different world. I remember we used to collect um, bonfire wood, you know, from old people, and then you'd get some. An old woman came to those. They are lads. Take away this, you know, like chest of drawers. You can take away these chest of drawers, and she said, "I'd give you all an after eight mint, but it's only six o'clock." <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've got to say, this has been one of our more wide ranging (laughs) conversations, but it's been brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for talking to us. Um, 
Paul and Frank. Um, uh, Frank, uh, urge everyone to look up Frank's books because they are they're, they're they're probably good. And dust down, dust down the um, you know, you must be able to get Monocle Mutineer on Prime or something. Um, well, it must be out there. Someone have someone have streamed it, won't they? Unfortunately, so you won't be getting paid, Paul. <laughs> so we shouldn't encourage people, really, should we? Don't rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, incidentally, if you can't bear to read Frank's book, you can always listen. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, that's a very good point. It. Yeah, very good right. point. Uh, it's the Hitler Years disaster, which is the I like the sound of that. 1940 to 1945. Um, thanks again. <laughs> yeah, subtitled. It didn't go well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks again, uh, Frank Madonna and uh, Paul McGann. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, we'll see you soon. Cheerio. Bye.